In the opening sentences of Jamaica Ladies by historian Christine Walker, we meet Elizabeth Keyhorn. It's 1713. Elizabeth is sitting at her desk in the busy port town of Kingston, Jamaica. From her house on West Street, which still exists today in modern Kingston, Elizabeth can hear the buzz of the harbour, the unloading of goods like spices, fashionable accessories and lace to be sold into the rapidly expanding economy of the island. So too would she have been able to hear the sounds of the trade that underpinned it all. The unloading of black Africans who'd been ripped from their lives across the ocean and brought to Jamaica as slaves, either to work on plantations on the island or to undertake another journey to the slave markets in what is now Central and South America. Elizabeth Keyhorn would have known the mechanics of the process well. After all, it was how she'd arrived in Jamaica in the first place. But during her lifetime, Elizabeth had attained her freedom, property, and she'd married. It was why she was sat at her desk that morning. Elizabeth was penning her last will and testament. In it, she divvied up her property, giving linens and silk clothing to her four daughters who were still held in enslavement. But to her son, Joseph, who was free like Elizabeth, she left her house, and the two enslaved women and their children that she owned. Elizabeth Keon, who had been trafficked to Jamaica and forced into chattel slavery, had cemented her escape from the trade by becoming a slaveholder herself. She wasn't alone. In the telling of history, the stories of women are often made invisible or reduced to simple archetypes and binaries, the oppressed versus the oppressor. But the role of women slave owners in the British plantation colonies offers up complexities, contradictions, and a window into the lives, both free and enslaved, of those obscured by the shadow of not-so-great men. I'm Moyle Othin McLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history. This is Human Resources. We'll be focusing on Jamaica today, one of the central sites of Britain's slavery empire. Now, slaveholders in Jamaica broadly fell into two categories, those who lived on the island and the absentees, the slave owners or investors back in Britain who had others manage their estates and the humans forced to labour on them. Women made up 40% of slave owners across the Caribbean. They were less likely to be absentee owners as well. And although historians have had to dig even harder to pull together a picture of their lives, it's out there. My name is Christine Walker, and I'm assistant professor of Atlantic world history at Yale and U.S. College, which is in Singapore. And I wrote a book called Jamaica Ladies that investigates the really critical roles played by women slaveholders in building the British Empire. My book covers the early colonial period of Jamaican history, which hadn't really been studied in a comprehensive way before. So it begins in 1655, roughly, when Oliver Cromwell seizes the island of Jamaica from Spanish control. And it ends in the 1760s, 1770s, when Jamaica has become the full-blown sugar plantation-dominated colony that we're more familiar with. A lot of scholarship on slave owners focuses on absentees, the ones who operated their plantations from Britain, usually men. Your work looks at not just women slave owners, but women slave owners who lived in the colonies, like Elizabeth Keyhorn. Unsurprisingly, the papers that we've saved are the papers of elite white men who moved to Britain and then their families preserved 
their letters and their account books. But what I did is when I went to Jamaica, I looked at a really different type of record. I was very interested in quote unquote ordinary people, women in particular, and they appear in other types of records like wills and inventories that didn't make their way to Britain. And so they're a lot harder to access. But what they show us is that there were thousands of people and many, many women who stayed in the colonies. What were some of the reasons slaveholders stayed in the colonies? There are all sorts of reasons. It was very expensive to relocate to Britain, and then you had to hire people to manage your plantation for you. And those people usually weren't invested in making a profit for you and your family. They were interested in making a profit for themselves. And so it's generally better to have a family member on the ground managing your estate in the Caribbean. And so people stay there. I think they also stay there because they feel more comfortable in the Caribbean. I look at women who are second, third generation born in Jamaica, and they don't feel at home when they go to Britain. They would rather be in a place surrounded by their family. They're conditioned to be enslavers, and they want to control and command enslaved people in a way that is more difficult to do in Britain. And so they stay, they don't go back. And my guess, although I think we need to do more research into this, is that the majority of colonists follow this path. They stay in the colonies either out of preference or because of monetary reasons. And the people that we see in Britain who are absentees tend to be extremely wealthy and very elite, and they're not necessarily representative of a typical colonist. How was land divvied up initially in Jamaica? The divvying up of land happens in different ways at different points in time. So initially, land is given to soldiers in Cromwell's army, and some of these soldiers stay and they become the founders of the most important plantation families and political families on the island. And then as more colonists arrive in Jamaica, they begin selling smaller parcels of land to just individual property holders. And so it would look more like a typical colony by the 18th century. When did women colonists come into the picture? Women arrive in Jamaica pretty early on. I find evidence of women on the island as soon as Cromwell's army is there. Some of the more famous generals actually go with their wives to the colony and they migrate with husbands as the land opens up. They inherit property from fathers and husbands. So if we're thinking about generations of women being on the island, by the end of the 17th century, they're inheriting property. And then they pass property on to their children and their grandchildren. And so this is one of the ways that women acquire property. They also buy land outright. And so if we move from the plantations into more urban areas of Jamaica and think about places like Kingston and Spanish Town, land ownership in these urban areas is quite high among women. I think in Spanish Town, they control 30 to 40% of the property. Um, So they tend to invest in 
urban properties. They do buy plantations, but they also inherit property. So those would be the three streams. What are they doing with the land they seize that differs to their male counterparts? If we're thinking about Jamaica, we will typically describe what's been called the sugar revolution or an economy that's really dominated by sugar plantations is happening in the 1730s. Before the 1730s, what we see are smallholders who are experimenting with all kinds of different crops because they want to make money in Jamaica, but they're still settling the territory. So they'll try to grow cocoa. They'll try to grow ginger. Some people grow cotton. And then they transition to intensive sugar cultivation. And the really vast sugar plantations typically are owned by white men. What women do is they remain agriculturally diversified. So they might have a plantation where they're growing some sugar, but they're also raising livestock. They're raising cattle, they're raising horses, and then they'll sell this livestock to larger sugar planters. And so they find ways to occupy niches in an agricultural economy that seems like it's all about sugar, but the sugar planters are actually quite reliant on smallholders to grow the stuff that they're not growing and to raise the livestock that's gonna provide the power that they need to make a sugar plantation run and to move the sugar from the plantation to the ocean to then be shipped over to Britain. And so it's interesting when we start looking at women, this whole other agricultural landscape really emerges than the one that we typically think about when we envision a place like Jamaica. Who are these women? What are their backgrounds? It's really hard to identify and categorize specific types of women who are involved in land ownership or slave ownership in Jamaica. The Caribbean in general is a really diverse space in the early modern period, and Jamaica reflects this diversity. And so we have colonists of European descent. They might be Spanish, they might be French, English, Scottish, Irish. We have free people of African descent very early on who are colonists. And we also have people of various faiths. So there are Protestants, Catholics, and there's a strong Jewish community in Jamaica. And so if we're thinking about land ownership, we see women from all of these complex ethnic and religious backgrounds who own plantations and who also own property in urban areas. Perhaps one of the distinctions is that Free women of color tend to congregate in urban areas more so than they would in rural areas, and they tend to own urban properties. But otherwise, it's really difficult to classify and group these women geographically. The backgrounds that we would see, I would describe what we would call middle class, so middling women probably majority European descent, although that is also difficult to know. So one of the things I talk about in my book is that as whiteness becomes a privilege, women of African descent do all sorts of things and maneuver legally to obtain what were called the privileges 
that white people had. And so they may appear to be white in the archive, even though they have African ancestry. And this is a non-specific answer to your question, but getting numbers is difficult because record keeping is really poor. And people are also doing things to shift their own identities and to hide and camouflage their ancestry in the archives. Earlier, Christine said something very interesting that I wanted to pick up on, that women were conditioned to be enslavers, to control. I wondered what that looked like in practice. So I write about a woman named Mary Elbridge, who's one of the few women whose collection of letters has survived from this early colonial period in Jamaica. And she never directly references coercing enslaved people physically, but she's certainly involved in exploiting and coercing their labor and directing the overseer on her plantation to inflict all sorts of punishments on these people. And the way that I know that is that I also have her account book and she records payments that she makes to have people imprisoned in the local jail. She also makes payments to have people whipped. And so we know that she is definitely coercing these people. And if she's not physically punishing and brutalizing them herself, she's definitely paying other people to do her dirty work for her. And girls were really raised to occupy these kinds of positions in Jamaica. I have many instances of parents and grandparents giving enslaved children to infants as soon as they're born. One of the things they'll do is they will buy an enslaved child to then give another child And so when we imagine the kinds of dynamics that would emerge and the way these people are growing up, they're being trained almost from birth to command other children who then grow up and remain enslaved in their families. And so it's very natural for women who are born on these islands to assert their authority over enslaved people. This is something they've been doing for their entire lives. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. Women are a vital cog in upholding social systems. Slavery was no different. I wanted to ask Christine why women were such a key part in keeping the plantation system functioning. So I think the basic reason that it's vital for women to participate in slavery and to make the whole system function 
has to partially do with demographics. So we're looking at islands where the ratio between free and enslaved people is very extreme. In Jamaica, there are parishes by the middle of the 18th century where enslaved people outnumber free people by 10 to 1. So free people are significantly outnumbered and that makes every free person, including every female colonist, especially important when it comes to controlling the enslaved populations. And part of the reason it's important for them to be involved is that enslaved people repeatedly launch insurgencies against their enslavers. So there are small-scale revolts on individual plantations in Jamaica pretty much every five to 10 years. And there are much larger revolts like Tacky's Revolt, which you've talked about with some of your other guests in the past. And there are wars going on. So in the first half of the 18th century, the Maroons, who are a group of people of African and indigenous descent who form autonomous communities in Jamaica during Spanish occupation, they fight a war against the British that the British lose. And this is going on at the same time that the colony's sugar industry is really exploding. And this is what makes female colonists so vital in maintaining control over the enslaved population. So we need to remember that colonial government in these colonies is quite weak. There is no police force, like we would have a modern police force. And the laws really put the onus of policing enslaved people on individual slave owners. And that group of slave owners includes women. So as soon as you take women out of the equation, you're losing a portion of that free population that's already a beleaguered minority that's really fighting to maintain control over this vast enslaved populace that does not want to be coerced, that does not want to perform this horrific, brutal labor. And this is what makes them so important. What about traditional myths attached to women, that we're more nurturing, kinder, gentler? Did these play out amid the brutality of slavery? Women enslavers were definitely not kinder, gentler enslavers than men. They were every bit as brutal. They were every bit as violent. They may have enacted their brutality through other people who they either commanded or paid to do violent actions for them and to be coercive for them. But there are instances of female enslavers being violent themselves. And so if we look to Virginia rather than the Caribbean, we have the writing of a very famous enslaver, William Byrd, and his wife, Lucy Byrd, was incredibly violent toward the people that she enslaved. I think he writes about her throwing an iron at an enslaved woman at one point in time. So we know that they were violent from the start. The way that women enslavers treated enslaved women, we might think of it as bifurcated in a sense that in general, they were very harsh, they were very coercive, they were exploitative. But they then formed close relationships with certain um, enslaved women that may have been their domestic servants, that may have even been their nannies when they were children. And they will talk about 
these kinds of women in a very different way than they'll talk about people who are working on their plantations. So one of the things that I look at are women's practices of manumitting or freeing certain people in their wills. And what I found is that women were much more likely to liberate other adult women. And so I suspect that these are the women that they had forged what they would think about as close relationships with, whether the women they were freeing thought of these relationships as close is another question that we don't really have answers to. Can you tell me more about a woman who had been freed from slavery and then went on to actively participate in the system as a slave owner herself? One of the women who I talk about in the conclusion of my book is this really extraordinary figure, Mary Rose, who was born in 1700. Her mother was a free woman of African descent, and she had a white father. We don't know who he was. And I say that she's extraordinary because her letters have survived and they may be some of the earliest correspondence authored by a free woman of color from the Caribbean. And she had very complicated relationships with enslaved women. She had an intimate partnership with a man called Rose Fuller who became an important politician in Jamaica, and then he got in a fight with the governor and relocated to Britain, where he went on to become an MP. And through this connection to Rose Fuller, Mary Rose gained command of enslaved women and enslaved children. So on the one hand, she's an enslaver. On the other hand, she continually asks Rose Fuller to help her free specific enslaved children, these two girls named Fanny and Molly. And so it's really difficult to unpack that relationship, the relationship that she had with this man, the relationships that she had with these enslaved women, the relationships that she had with these specific children. They must have been close relationships because she was willing to continually pressure Rose Fuller, who was this elite and politically important figure in Jamaica and then in Britain, to obtain their manumissions. And these girls are eventually freed because of Mary Rose's actions. But we always have to temper that with the fact that she also owned enslaved people. And so I think these relationships are fascinating in their, maybe we would call it tortured complexities. And free women of Euro-African descent are in particularly complicated positions in societies like colonial Jamaica. Some of them become quite wealthy. They own property. They definitely own enslaved people. But they are also in a precarious position because colonies in the Caribbean passed laws during the 18th century that increasingly restrict their life possibilities and their legal rights. And so slaveholding becomes this way for to project their freedom. One of the things that I think about is that freedom for them was not a politically and legally abstract concept. Freedom was something in a place like colonial Jamaica that had to be signaled, it had to be practiced, it had to be performed. And so one of the critical ways that you perform your freedom 
is by holding other people in bondage. And that seems so counterintuitive to us today. But that is how societies like Jamaica worked, where they're so reliant on slavery for their wealth and for their survival and for profit. The entire society is structured around slaveholding. Mary Rose is such an interesting example. Do we have any evidence about how women of colour who were slaveholders were viewed by other women, even within this slaveholder class? Is there a difference of status? There's definitely a legal difference of status between women who are categorized as white and women who are categorized as being quote unquote mulatto or quote unquote Negro. And the legal privileges extended to white British subjects by the middle of the 18th century differ from the legal privileges that women of African descent would hold. But at the same time, their gendered positions temper these differences because women don't really claim the kinds of legal rights that matter anyway in these societies. So they don't have political rights. They don't hold political posts in the colonies. They don't sit on juries. And these are the kinds of restrictions that are passed against free people of color in a place like Jamaica, where the men wouldn't be allowed to hold these kinds of positions. At the same time, somebody like Mary Rose does on occasion petition parliament to obtain what are called the same rights and privileges as white subjects. And this is something that Mary Rose does herself for her children. And so she's trying to ensure that her children, including her sons in particular, are going to be treated as what we would categorize as white in Jamaica. What do these laws tell us? The fact that these laws are in place shows us, A, how race is constructed through the law, but B, how there's a certain fluidity in these categories and a malleability and how people of African descent can disappear into a group that would be categorized as white if they're able to obtain these kinds of privileges. The people who do get these privileges, it's quite a small group. I think day-to-day practice, how did women who are categorized as white view women of African descent It probably had more to do with wealth and status than race, certainly in the first half of the 18th century, probably going into the 19th century. There are plenty of references in women's wills to relationships that they have with free women of color. So we can assume that some of these women are white, although they may have just not been racially categorized when their wills were recorded. A place like Jamaica is not necessarily racially segregated in the way that we would think about racial segregation in modern society, but it's certainly segregated if we're thinking about the boundary between slavery and freedom. And so the closer you are to slavery, if you are a recently freed person, it's unlikely that your best friend is going to be a wealthy white woman who's a plantation owner. If you're a really wealthy woman of color, that woman may be your friend because you operate in the same class of people. And you're on an island where the free population is so small that you really have to lean on each other to police enslaved people. 
And so I think these relationships and the social landscape is very complicated and we need to unpack those complexities and those relationships. Subjugation essentially creates whiteness. The more that you can subjugate others and the more money you get from that, the more you had proximity to what was classified as whiteness back then. What do we know about how these women slaveholders were viewed by wider society? I fear today they might be called girl bosses. Were they seen as outliers or entrepreneurs? The views of women slaveholders change over the course of the 18th century, and views of these women alter depending if you're thinking from the perspective of a Caribbean colony or if you're based in Britain. So over the 18th century, and people aren't particularly interested in them in the early 18th century because this is, you know, 50, 60 years before the anti-slavery movement, most people don't have moral issues with slaveholding. Slaveholding is a massive business for the British Empire, and many people participate in slavery, whether it's directly or indirectly. So until, let's say, the 1760s, 1770s, there isn't a lot of attention paid to female slaveholders. Once the anti-slavery movement gains momentum, they become caricatured in British print, in the in British print culture, depending on who the authors are. So if they're anti-slavery activists, they're going to satirize slaveholders, including women enslavers. They're going to describe them as incredibly brutal, incredibly violent. And they will talk about slaveholding as perverting femininity. Now, if we're thinking about the colonial view of these women or the view of these women from a place like Jamaica or a place like Antigua or Barbados, they're considered to be normal. Um, they are expected to participate in slavery. They're living in societies that are inherently violent and inherently very brutal and very racially charged. And so the view from a local level would be positive. Um, they would be expected to, to engage in all sorts of practices that increasingly from the British perspective contradict how white femininity in particular is being constructed by the end of the 18th century. What evidence do we have of the way women colonists and slave owners were viewed in Britain? There are certain plays and certain novels that will depict female colonists from the Caribbean in particular ways. So they will typically be portrayed as lacking manners they would not be viewed as being polite. And so one of the reasons I call my book Jamaica Ladies is that the women who are living in Jamaica are not viewed as ladies in Britain during the second half of the 18th century and certainly not in the 19th century. But then class factors into this as well. So if the woman is very, very wealthy, people may not have this negative view of her because they want her to marry into their family. And so it depends on the person's status. It depends on their wealth. But if we're thinking about the general view, it would become more and more negative as the 18th century progressed. 
And this has to do with shifting ideas about femininity and masculinity, and also the, the just the huge increase in support for the anti-slavery movement moving into the 19th century. So essentially, they were viewed as sort of like novu riche, and because of that, they were seen as these vulgar women planters within this vulgar enterprise. Yes. So planters in general are portrayed by novelists and playwrights and in newspapers, sometimes as nouveau riche, but then people always want their money. And so they will sometimes just assimilate and camouflage their roots in the Caribbean once they've relocated to Britain. And this would be more the class of people that I was talking about who are quite elite, who are quite wealthy, and who become what we call the absentee planter class. And women would have been a part of class. And so there are numerous instances of very wealthy women who marry into aristocratic families in Britain. And nobody really talks about the fact that these women are from the Caribbean because they just want to acquire the estates and the fortunes of these women. But if you're looking at some of the popular satires, some of the illustrations that are made of Caribbean planters by the early 19th century, they're quite unflattering and they portray the women certainly as being vulgar, definitely as being unfeminine. Their sexuality is often targeted and their relationships with enslaved people are often used to critique them. And by the end of the 18th century, their associations with enslaved people, their intimacies with enslaved people, and the violence that they exercise as enslavers really renders them quite unfeminine in general, if we're thinking about how the British public would view them. But if we're thinking about individuals who are very wealthy, they would seamlessly feed into elite families in Britain. How did these women view themselves? From the 18th century, very few diaries or journals survive. The kind of writing that we might have moving into the 19th century doesn't exist. We do have some letter collections and the ways that these women present themselves. I'm thinking again about a woman like Mary Elbridge, who I spoke about before, who was a plantation owner, or another woman who I read about where I did find a collection of letters she'd written whose name was Anna Hassel, who was more of a merchant and a trader than she was a planter, they tend to view themselves and to present themselves in quite authoritative and powerful ways. They do not dissimulate. They don't use a lot of feminine tropes when they're portraying themselves unless they want to get something out of it and they're writing to men. So what I would say in terms of how they view themselves is that they think of themselves as commanding. They think of themselves as relatively powerful and they don't really question their behaviors and their actions in relation to the people that they're holding in captivity. Again, the people that I'm looking at, they were born and bred to be enslavers. And so it's quite naturalized for them, and they're really conditioned to be in these roles. And I think that amplifies their sense of authority if we want to guess at how they thought about themselves. 
But it's really tricky without the evidence. We can speculate, though, from these few letter collections that we have. Elizabeth I, the woman who authorised the British Crown's first sponsored slave expeditions to Africa, once made an iconic speech about transcending her weak and feeble female body to attain the power and might of a king. When I was little, that speech was sold to me as inspirational proto-feminism. Now I look at it and all I hear is an attempt to seize corrupting patriarchal power for individual gain at the expense of her subjects, women and men alike. The women slave owners who clawed their way to independence in the plantation colonies of the Caribbean did the same. Some were born wealthy, some were made enslaved. Their womanhood meant they knew what oppression and obstruction felt like from birth. But they lived in a society governed by the rules of patriarchy and emerging capitalism, expressed through the burgeoning slave trade. And so, profiting from the enslavement of others became their ticket to varying degrees of freedom. They were working with the tools they had, but the tools were that of the master's house, loaned, not borrowed, and they were ultimately in service to making sure the scaffolding that propped up the slave trade was reinforced by as many participants as possible. It kind of reminds me of housing ownership in Britain today. The system is broken, housing prices are through the roof, rents are sky high, developers are profiting at a massive rate, yet social housing shortages have over a million people waiting for a home. And the only way to secure this asset for old age and your own long-term future is to buy a house. So the people who can just about afford to keep buying, they keep becoming landlords to pay off their mortgages, they keep the whole mess afloat. And then they say, look, it's, it's my only choice made under these circumstances. Well, next week, we'll be heading back to Britain to explore the lives of women who didn't live alongside the people they bought and sold, the absentee slave owners. Resources was written by me, Moya Lothian McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumber. Production assistant is Roy Boyle. Sound designed by Ben Yulovitz and the Smiley Sound Collective. This is a Broccoli production. <laughs>